0: Now, The Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity.
1: And welcome, everyone, to the Tuesday edition of The Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. We are brought to you today by NetSuite by Oracle. Right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights with a free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, That can be found at netsuite.com slash martini. Much more on that in a little bit. The good news, Jim, is that both of our favorite NFL teams will be starting this week, and we have zero losses so far in this season. That's all the good news we have for today, folks. Let's move on to the actual three martinis now. (laughs) The first bad martini today comes to us courtesy of West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin, one of the last few Democrats in the U.S. Senate with which uh, a Republican can really have a conversation. And I guess it's nice that they can still have the conversation with them for a few more years. But it means that Republicans won't really have a chance to get that seat anytime soon. According to Politico, Joe Manchin will not run for governor of West Virginia in 2020. The decision is likely to be a relief to Democrats who would struggle to hold on to the seat in the future and keeps one of the few remaining centrists in the Senate. The move comes after months of Manchin flirting with a gubernatorial bid against Republican Governor Jim Justice and complaining about Washington gridlock. Quote, when considering whether to run for governor, I couldn't focus just on which job I enjoyed the most, but on where I could be the most effective for the mountain state, Manchin said in a statement. Ultimately, I believe my role as U.S. senator allows me to position our state for success for the rest of this century. Now, uh, he would have appointed his own successor uh, temporarily if he'd been elected governor, but ultimately that would have been ripe for a Republican pickup, probably, Jim. He's the top Democrat on the Energy Committee, which, if the Democrats do get the majority, means we at least have someone fairly rational there. But uh, one of the big battles for 2020 is control of the Senate, and um, still very tough for Republicans to hang on here, given the map, and Joe Manchin's not making anything any easier. Yeah,
0: I think you can characterize this as more of a mixed bag martini. Um, I had heard the rumors and, and kind of been rather skeptical of them, For a couple of reasons. One being that Manchin has already been a governor. So he knows the job. Uh, It's not like this is some sort of lifelong ambition he's had that has always eluded him or something like that. Secondly, he just got reelected last year in 2018 and uh, it was a hard fought race, Patrick Morrissey, but uh, Manchin won pretty handily. Mm -hmm. You, You look at that and you're like, okay, this is not a guy who. Again, if he was thinking about running for governor and one had been, you know, flirting with that idea for a long time, why would he run for reelection? And then kind of thirdly, you know, look, Joe Manchin is the one Democrat who will vote for Trump nominees or Trump proposals. From our perspective, probably one of the most reasonable Democrats in the Senate. So if you're going to replace a Democrat, this is probably the last one you'd really be itching to get rid of. You know, Joe Manchin allows us to say there is bipartisan support for, you know, (laughs) Brett Kavanaugh. That's right. You know, kind of like every time Joe Lieberman used to support something with the Iraq war. Hey, we got a Democrat. Um, So this is not, you know, again, I'm I'm sure there's a part of the Republican National Senatorial Committee that would like a second crack at that with a uh, non-incumbent Democratic senator in West Virginia. I also think it's worth just noting when you look at Jim Justice's record, another former Democrat uh, turned Republican, that the, the interesting thing is, you know, you look at the populist style politics that you get there in West Virginia, They're generally going to be socially conservative, certainly going to be uh, pro-gun, kind of culturally conservative. They are not likely to be terribly economically conservative. Uh, Maybe they like tax cuts, but by and large, suspicious of big corporations, um, uh, obviously pro-coal. In other words, you're not going to get an enormous amount of ideological diversity in the sort of people who are going to get elected statewide in West Virginia. You can either end up with somebody who's going to be, you know, very much on the. Uh, you're you're going to have the same policies probably from whether whether the Democrat wins or the Republican wins. So you know, is it better for the Republicans to have the seat? Makes it a little bit easier to have uh, keep control of the majority of the next election. Yeah, I guess. But uh, again, you know, if you replace Manchin, you've replaced probably the most conservative de- Democrat of the Senate. So you're not exactly breaking up the party hats. La di da. Jim Justice is, you know, technically a Republican, used to be a Democrat. Uh, him switching parties was one of the feathers in the cap of uh of Trump administration. But I think it just probably more accurately states the the attitudes that are dominant in West Virginia right now don't fit very well with the progressive left and particularly on economics don't fit tooly well with the conservative right. So things are probably going to stay as the status quo. So that's our I don't know whether this is a bad martini Greg or a meh.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's kind of lukewarm, which isn't that great. But there are. It could be worse. Definitely could be worse. Uh, and the one thing I would note is that uh, we're not going to get a Joe Manchin election now till at least 2024, probably. And that's sad because even though Joe Manchin keeps winning, his campaigns are never boring. Uh, one time he's blasting legislation with a 12 gauge or whatever that was, and then of course uh, it wasn't because of him, but we had the Don Blankenship cocaine Mitch. Aspect of the of the 2018 primary. So whatever you got to say about Joe Manchin's Senate runs, they're not boring.
0: Yeah, and his daughter was head of that healthcare company that was charging really high prices for something, some drug. I'm not remembering the details off the top of my head. Again, there's no indication that had much of an impact on Manchin at all. So this is a guy who is, you know, if he, if he were running for king of West Virginia, he'd probably do just fine. So. <laughs> You know, if you're the Republican National Senatorial Committee, probably better to focus your efforts elsewhere.
1: Exactly. I believe it was the EpiPen that uh, they jacked the price up on, which, if you remember the end of season four of 24, became an absolutely integral portion of the plot line in the concluding uh, hour of that season. That was the Marwan season with the the train wreck, the shooting down of Air Force One. Sorry, the... uh, for the for the spoiler there, that was fifteen years ago, um, and and so ultimately the EpiPen became very important at the end of that season. I'll just leave it there for those of you who might still want to stream it.
0: Yeah, this this is the EpiPen research that Greg and I do <laughs> before every show.
1: Exactly. Well, speaking of research, uh, knowing the numbers that uh, go along with your business are very, very important, because if you don't know your numbers, you don't know your business. But the problem that growing businesses have and that keeps them from knowing their numbers is their hodgepodge of business systems. They have one system over here for accounting, another for sales, another for inventory, and so on and so on. It's really just a big, inefficient mess that takes up too much time And too many resources. And ultimately, all that confusion hurts the bottom line.
0: Introducing NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform, giving you the visibility and control that you need to grow. With NetSuite, you save time, money, and unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance and accounting, orders, and human resources instantly, right from your desktop or phone. That's why NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system.
1: Thousands of the best-known brands and fastest-growing companies use NetSuite to manage their business, and now it's available to you. And right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights with a free guide. It's called Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, and you can get it at netsuite.com martini. That's netsuite.com martini to download your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, Netsuite. Dot com slash martini. All right, Jim. Let's move to our next bad martini now. And sadly, we're doing this yet again. And yet again, we're in Texas. That's where on Saturday the carnage unfolded, where the guy who had been fired and was already uh, hanging by a thread, psychologically speaking, it would appear, called into the FBI, called into local authorities. Wasn't making much sense. Got pulled over for not signaling on a lane change. Opened fire at authorities. This led to an ongoing rampage. I believe the the total now is seven dead. The shooter is dead now as well. Finally uh, taken down near a uh, theater in Odessa, the Midland-Odessa area. And once again, Jim, we're seeing all of these warning signs. We got neighbors saying, oh, yeah, this guy used to be out in the yard in the middle of the night shooting animals. And then we find out from uh, Governor Abbott that this guy should never have had a gun. The shooter was arrested in 2001 for a misdemeanor offense that would not have prevented him from legally purchasing firearms in Texas. But Governor Greg Abbott also tweeting out that the shooter failed a previous gun background check and did not go through one for the weapon he used in Odessa. Jim, you got a lot of people once again going straight to the talking points, which we'll get to in the final martini. But what do you make of this particular Carnage in Texas and uh, what the lessons ought to be from this.
0: Yeah, well, you see a lot of people in our world, uh, on our, si- our side of the aisle or ideological divide, however you want to characterize it, saying something like, "You know, America doesn't have a gun problem; it has a mental health problem." That's correct as far as it goes, but we also have a problem of people who have not only mental health issues but who have demonstrated to be a threat to themselves or a threat to others, still somehow getting their hands on guns. Now, as of this recording, it's not terribly clear on how this guy managed to get these firearms. Um, this is the classic case of somebody who the instant check system should have, if he had bought them in his own name and had the appropriate ID and all that stuff, the national instant check system should have detected that arrest and said, no, this person is not legally allowed to own a gun. Now, we don't know if he stole the guns, if he borrowed the guns, uh, what the situation was. When you hear the story of the neighbors saying, oh, he was shooting animals in, in his yard in the middle of the night, you don't call the cops on that, that you know. I, again, I don't know whether this is you know, over a large property and and he's you know dealing with feral hogs or something like that, or whether he's in his backyard shooting at squirrels or something like that. But that would seem like the sort of thing where you could say, hey, you know, at this this person is uh, using his firearm in a way that endangers others. Um, it's you know deeply frustrating after each one of these these cases. I've talked in the past about uh, red flag laws and. Generally, I support them. Uh, I want uh, due process provisions, and, and I think the folks at the NRA and other folks make a fair point that let's assume this all works as it's supposed to. You have somebody who's a threat to themselves or a threat to, or threat to others, and you you the legal process. You go to a judge, you prove it. The evidence is is uh, significant. The order goes out. Take away that person's guns. Okay, then what? <laughs> because you still have someone who you've deemed to be a threat to themselves or others, and and you still have a situation where you know, you know that person could still use a knife. That person could still hang themselves. You know, like you'd like to think. And but none of these red flag laws, like then say, okay, and then the state must step in and do X to to you know whether it's you know uh, mandatory evaluation period or or things like that. If you're starting to see a little more debate about what you know what people should be authorized to do, but in all 50 states, you can have somebody committed, basically. Have somebody, man, you know, mentor observation periods, I think up to seven days in almost every state. Now, you got to have good proof. You got to be able to, con- you know, convince someone of this. Um, in addition to everything else, when you say, I don't know whether he, what he said in his, uh, when he got fired was a threat, but that's, you know, if you threaten to kill somebody, that can be a, a, a charge. That's how they got the guy out in Long Beach the other week. The case in Long Beach was being cited as an example of why red flag laws would succeed, except it wasn't a red flag law. This person had a coworker. They told the coworker, don't show up on Tuesday. Something bad's going to happen. This person figured out that this person was, told the cops. Cops did their investigation, put them under surveillance, you know, find a small arsenal in his home. So we do have laws that can intervene in these circumstances. The question now is, what's it going to take to get every person who knows somebody like this, who they describe as a, t- a ticking time bomb, who they see as a real potential danger, and they choose not to do anything? Um, and that's, you know... In the seeking suspicion, this is yet another tragedy that could have been prevented, Craig.
1: But while some people are trying to take up the issue in a meaningful way, other people are reaching for the fastest platitude. Hey, let's talk about Beto O'Rourke. Uh. <laughs> speaking of the fastest platitude <laughs> right. so uh once again this has happened in his state uh not in el paso again like the the walmart shooting from a couple of weeks back but he was asked about this uh this is a clip from nbc news i'm not sure who the reporter was who asked the question but basically uh they were saying are, are you saying that people with uh, ar-15s should be forced to to undergo a buyback program and a says oh yeah absolutely so i, I want to be really clear that um, that's exactly what we're going to do um, americans will who own ar-15s ak-47s will have to sell them to the government we're, we're not going to allow them to stay on our streets to show up in our communities to be used against us in our synagogues our churches our mosques uh, our walmarts our, our public places Then over the weekend, uh, State of the Union on CNN, I believe, he was speaking with Dana Bash, and her point was, well, the USA Today editorial board thinks your idea is a really bad one because it would give the NRA the political high ground here. And if you've ever heard a canned pander line, here's Beto. More than I worry about the politics or the polling, um, more than I care about what the NRA has to say on this, uh, I care for, for my kids and this country Fascinating stuff there Jim apparently Beto O'Rourke is the only one in politics who's concerned about the children and it's also curious that there are some obvious follow-up questions about his mandatory buyback program that the mainstream media never seemed to ask. you know Greg uh, there there was, there was somebody who when, when Beto was off doing his you know Jack Kerouac
0: on the road you know online diary. Somebody on the left who was particularly exasperated said, you know, Lord, give me the unwarranted overconfidence of a Beto O'Rourke, who is absolutely totally convinced that he was, you know, God's gift to all of us. As the Vanity Fair cover prominently quoted, I was born to do this. I guess in a way, someday I'd love to have the freedom that comes with being at 2% in the polls and being desperate for anything. So you, Because it means you never really need, you need to get the headline. And if you get the headline about your proposal, then, then that's great. That's all you really need. You're, you're relevant again. People are talking about you again because you otherwise have completely dropped off the radar screen. And you don't really need to think through how this proposal is going to work. You know, he says there's a you know mandatory buyback of every AR-15 that's out there. First of all, there are millions that are out there. Obviously, the millions upon millions are not being used in criminal uh, a- activities. But if you know, he says, all right, we're going to have the federal government do that. First of all, do you seize the sales records to know who's got them? Is that is that you know part of the going to be part of this process? Uh, when we know who's got them, does the government show knock on your door and say, "Please sell it. You know, we have cash or here's our here's our here's your check. Please turn in your AR-15." What happens when people report them as lost or stolen? Are they accountable, or do we know that they're not just faking it so they can actually keep them? What are the consequences of disobeying this President Beto O'Rourke law that all Americans must turn in their AR-15 for compensation. He doesn't want to think about that stuff. I notice he doesn't really get answered answered many questions about that stuff. You can imagine this going bad really, really quickly. Like let's okay, just, again, think about being president. Let's say like you've decided you're really concerned about gun violence and you believe that there's something out there in the public that they shouldn't have. Uh, this administration has already banned bump stocks, right? There, there's, you know, certain types of firearms. You're not allowed to own a fully automatic weapon, right? So you've decided that you want to get a certain kind of weapon out of the hands of private citizens, even though it was previously legal to own, even though it was purchased in a, you know in in, uh, in compliance with all applicable federal laws, state laws, local laws. You've decided you used to own this, but we're gonna you know we've decided it's it's now illegal. You can't keep that, and we're gonna decide what the compensation price is. Right? What if somebody thinks, no, no, I got I have the special AR-15. I've got the special engravings on it. Mine costs more. I want more, you know, you have to bring receipts. You, you'd think through this and you'd think, okay, well, look, understandably, Americans get very upset when you say, hi, I'm from the government. I'm here to take your guns away. You haven't committed any crime. You, you haven't done anything wrong. There's, there's nothing, you know, I've just decided that what you own is illegal and I'm going to take it away from you. I'm going to give you some money. I'm not going to negotiate on how much money I give you. It doesn't matter if you tell me it's not for sale. I'm taking what you have. Boy, not hard to imagine a scenario where that goes very bad very quickly. But if you're Beto or Work, you don't have to worry about that stuff because you just want the headline. And so far, it looks like he's gotten it, Greg.
1: If I remember. I mean, I'd worry about this more if Beto or Work was going to be the next president. <laughs> right. That doesn't seem likely right now. Correct me if I'm wrong, Jim. It's been a while. But uh, didn't we have a couple incidents in the early 90s where the government going after people's guns who didn't want to give them up didn't turn out too well?
0: Yeah. I mean, look, you know, obviously uh, <laughs> Waco comes to mind. Uh, and, you know, it's worth noting, again, this is. Something I read about quite a bit for ideas for fiction and other kind of stuff. The whole Waco standoff was an unbelievable, you know, not just unbelievably sad for all the kids who were involved uh, and who lost their lives, all the people who kind of fell under the sway of a guy who was effectively a cult leader. No doubt, you know, responsibility for what happened there is primarily on David Koresh. But that doesn't change the fact that there were several steps in the process where law enforcement, ATF, and the FBI could have made different decisions and things could have turned out differently. Most notably, the fact that David Koresh went into town to buy supplies every now and then. And if your warrant is for David Koresh, don't go after him in his heavily fortified and armed, heavily armed compound. Nail him when he's at the corner store at the Five and Dime or something like that, or when he's on the road back and forth. There's a whole bunch of places they could have made the arrest, and maybe things would not have shaken out the way they did. Um, does this make what David Koresh did? Okay, no. But, you know, when people, you know, look, there are people in this country who own a lot of guns and who believe the government's going to come after them. Ruby Ridge was another famous example of this. Do you want to behave in a way that mitigates that paranoia, or do you want to act out in a way that appears to verify all of their paranoia? But when you're Beto work, you don't have to think about this sort of thing.
1: Yeah, you're right. It's consequence-free rambling to get attention. That's pretty much all we are with Beto at this point. Uh, Jim, good to be back with you. Talk to you again tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review, I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today, and don't forget to visit our friends over at NetSuite. NetSuite by Oracle. You can find out more at netsuite.com slash martini, and also get that free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits. And tune in again Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.